Uh, it's good to be uh, with you all. For those of you that don't know me, uh, I'm Sean. I know you've seen me around uh, doing the hymn sermonettes, and it's good to be here this morning. Thanks to, to Robert and Ray and Chris for the, for the opportunity. Uh, we're just going to continue on through Acts this morning, so if you have your Bibles, uh, we'll be in Acts chapter 27. We'll be in Acts chapter 27. And I'll go ahead and pray for us before we get started. Uh, We're just going to go through this, uh, just kind of fly over it and touch down on a few points. Um, The main place where we're actually going to be this morning is is verse 20 through 38. We just kind of want to see how uh, suffering and storms are part of the mission. And in this this passage, we're going to see how the Apostle Paul is finally going to Rome. He's, uh, he's left uh, both Festus, Festus and Agrippa, and he's appealed to Caesar, and he's getting ready to go towards Rome. He's finally uh, going towards his destination, and what happens is he, he reaches this hurricane-capacity storm uh, on the way to Rome, and God changes their travel plans. They end up going to this, this little island that's in the middle of nowhere called Malta, and from there they go to Rome. So let's pray this morning, and we'll get started. Father God, we just thank you for this time. We thank you for this service. We ask, Lord God, that you would speak uh, just through your word to us this morning. Help us to to realize, help it to grip us, Lord God, that suffering and the storms are part of the mission. Uh, Help us to see that you work in and through our sufferings for your glory and for our good. And we just thank you, Holy Spirit, that you would would speak this morning, not me, and that uh, just you would bring the light of the gospel, as Second Corinthians 4 was talking about, that you would bring the light of the gospel, that you would show yourself to be precious, to be a treasure, to be glorious. So we give you the honor and the glory and the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in Acts 27. Like we just stated previously, Paul is going to Rome finally. And what happens here is that we want to see how the storm and suffering are part of the mission. If, as we've been through Acts, as we've been going on uh, through these chapters, and we've seen how, how suffering has got, how God has worked in and through the sufferings of the church and through his servants to advance the gospel, to, to advance the mission of spreading his gospel throughout the world. We've seen that in the earlier parts of Acts where the church was comfortable in Jerusalem and they were, they were content kind of with being where they were and they weren't necessarily spreading out to all the world yet, and, and through the, the persecution and the martyrdom of Stephen, and through the persecution of the church, the church ended up spreading throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria, and, and God was advancing the mission in and through those sufferings. It wasn't in spite of those sufferings, but it was actually in and through those sufferings. And so we want to see how God is advancing his mission of his gospel spreading throughout the world in and through the sufferings of Paul. And you can be sure that there was a devil at work, that there was demonic opposition coming at Paul to try to sift Paul, to try to, to try to break him, to try to separate him from the love of Christ. But God in those same sufferings had an intent to work for his glory and the good of his servants. So we want to see a little bit about Paul, uh, what, what he's been through thus far and what he's getting ready to go through. If you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 through 32, Paul gives us this detailed list of his sufferings. 2 Corinthians 11. I'm not going to do a lot of flipping around today, but we're just going to look at this scripture as a kind of a starting scripture to see where, where Paul's coming from. 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through 32 states, 
Paul is talking, uh, he's comparing himself to these false apostles, and he's, he's going to give this detailed list of how he's gone through suffering. He says, are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea. So he's gone through all of these things so far, even before he goes through what we've seen since he's come back to Jerusalem. And he continues on frequent journeys and danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure of me, of my anxiety for the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. So we can go back to Acts 27. Paul has gone through all of these sufferings just thus far. He's been beaten. He's been shipwrecked three times. Uh, He's been left at sea to survive. And it's like, is God picking on Paul? No, that's not what's happening here. Paul is suffering. He was called to suffer at his conversion experience for the name of Christ. And God likewise does the same things in yours and our suffering. We are called to suffer for the name of Christ. Philippians, Paul writes to the Philippian church and he tells them in chapter 1, verse 29, how, how for the sake of Christ, it's been granted to you, it's been given to you to believe. So our faith in Christ is attributed to to God. God has given it to us to believe in Christ, but he says also for his sake, it's been given to you to suffer for his name and to, to suffer for his sake. So suffering, God gives us suffering as a gift to glorify Christ, to glorify God. So we want to see how God works in and through our sufferings. And if you're suffering this morning, if you've been through sufferings, if maybe loss of a job or hardship or loss of a loved one or or death or sickness in your body, be encouraged to know that, that if you trust in him, if Christ is your, tre- if your, is your treasure, if you believe in him, God is working in and through your sufferings for his glory and for your good. So we want to see how the list continues. Ever since Paul has gotten through, uh, gotten to Jerusalem, he's been beaten and arrested in, in Acts chapter 21. He's been beaten and arrested. He's been dragged out of the temple. The Romans take him. Uh, he stands up before the, before the Israelites. He stands up and he tells them, hey, uh, I'm, this is who I am. He gets shouted down. He's taken by the Roman prisoners. He's it's taken by the Romans. Uh, he's taken prisoner. He's beaten. He's nearly flogged. He's almost flogged until he tells them about his Roman citizenship. He's been struck in the face by the high priest and those surrounding him him in Acts 23. He's nearly killed again by the religious leaders in a mob in between the Pharisees and the Sadducees because he tells them for the hope of the resurrection, I'm here. And that starts and incites a riot. And it says they're, they're almost wanting to tear him to pieces. So the Romans have to come in and save him again. Christ appears to him that following night and tells him, be encouraged. You're going to get to Rome. You know, heaven and earth is behind you. God and his sovereignty and his power is going to get you to Rome. And that encourages Paul. But the next day he wakes up and finds out that 40 Jewish terrorists are plotting a vow and an assassination plot to kill him. Um, He's later moved on. He's moved from, Caesarea, from uh, Jerusalem to Caesarea. Uh, he's lied on in court by the Jewish lawyers. Um, he's later left in prison unjustly for two years because uh, Felix wants to appease the people more than he wants to do what's right. 
So Paul, as we saw last week, appears before uh, Festus and Agrippa. Festus tells him he's out of his mind, that he's crazy. Agrippa says, this man was innocent. Uh, We see in verse 32 of 26, and Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So this is where we're at, and Paul's list of sufferings continue. And this isn't strange, this list of sufferings and how the the children of God and the people of God, those who trust in him, those who hope in him, go through these sufferings. It's not strange. This this line of suffering is seen all throughout Scripture. As we see the story of Joseph all the way back in Genesis, God makes a a promise to to Joseph's great-grandfather Abraham, and he tells him that he's going to bring this great nation that he's going to make out of them into Egypt. Well, how does he do that? He does that in and through the sufferings of his great-grandson, Joseph. Jacob has a, has a son named Joseph who he favors among his brothers, over his brothers. And Joseph has these dreams, and he has these dreams of him being exalted above his brothers and the sun and the moon and the stars. So his, his brothers don't like that, and they plot against him. They throw him in a pit. They sell him to Egyptian slave traders. He ends up going and being in Potiphar's house. Uh, Potiphar's wife tries to, to, to seduce him, ends up lying on him. He's thrown in prison unjustly, and God is continuing to work in and through the sufferings of Joseph. So he gets out of prison, interprets Potiphar's dream. He goes before Potiphar, and Potiphar makes it, interprets Pharaoh's dream, excuse me, goes before Pharaoh. Pharaoh makes him vice president, essentially, of all of Egypt. And what happens is his brothers have to come to him because there's going to be a famine. And Joseph looks them in the face at the end of Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, and says, What you intended for evil, God, in that same evil that you intended for, God intended it for good. So we want to see in our sufferings, God, he does the same thing. He accomplished his greatest mission in and through the sufferings of Jesus. We see how Jesus was beaten by the Romans, how he was unjustly turned over to be crucified by Pilate. And God is continuously working in and through the sufferings of his son to accomplish the greatest mission that this world, that this universe has ever seen, the forgiveness of sinners. And it continues even through the sufferings of Paul. So God advances his mission, his church, through the gospel, through the storm and suffering. So let's take a look at Acts 27. And we're just going to go, we're just going to kind of fly over and touch down in a few points and see how the sufferings of Paul are going to glorify God and how God is going to work in and through this storm. And it starts, it says, And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. And the next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. So just a, just a point we want to touch down on first. We see that Paul has been accompanied here. That we see sort of this Christian community just accompanying Paul in these two verses. We see Luke where he says, we. We haven't seen this we that, that Luke is writing as he's writing this account. We haven't seen this since all the way back in chapter 21. Luke is again with Paul. And now they have another guy by the name of Aristarchus who was with Paul before in Ephesus when this riot broke out. He was with Paul. Aristarchus, uh, Paul calls him later in, in Colossians and some of his other epistles that he's my fellow prisoner. And we see how, how Aristarchus and Luke were accompanying Paul. And as Paul gets on this ship, This isn't a a Disneyland cruise ship. This is a a ship, a big bulky ship with prisoners, with sailors, and with with soldiers on it. This is not a cruise ride. Paul, I mean, Luke and Aristarchus could have easily met up with Paul at the dock, prayed with him, said, we'll see you at Rome. We're going to take the 20 bus or the the next next thing going to Rome, and hey, we'll see you there. We pray pray God gets you there, Paul. 
But they didn't do this. They essentially, these two freedmen, gave up their freedoms to go on this prison ship with Paul. They gave up their freedoms. They sacrificed for the common burden of seeing the gospel advance. These two guys essentially gave up their freedoms. And it says some commentators will tell you that they had to become Paul's servants in order to get on this vessel, this ship, with him. And that convicts us because it's like this, this is Christian community at its best. They are bearing one another's burdens. They are, they are sacrificing for because of this common burden of seeing the gospel spread and seeing going with Paul. And we want to ask ourselves, do we do that same thing with our Christian brothers and sisters? Do we have this same kind of bond, this, this unity, this one mind that is, that is so focused on the gospel that we sacrifice for one another? that we bear one another's burdens. We may not be in chains like Paul was. We may not be going on a, on a ship to Rome, but every, every time that one of us goes through sufferings, we bear one another's burdens. When one of us uh, are called to witness, to go out, to, to reach another, another country or nation or be sent on mission in our homes and communities, do we suffer with them? Do we bear one another's burdens? Do we get up, give up our freedoms and essentially for the gospel? So we also see this in, in, in the church at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. These were people at Sidon, and it says that Paul was, was cared for. In some other translations, it says that he was refreshed by these people. This is kind of community on a larger scale, how Paul went to this church, and he was refreshed by them. You can believe that he did some teaching, that he, he encouraged them, and they encouraged him. They refreshed him. And we can continue to find this refreshment in our communities in our brothers and sisters who are united in the gospel with us. We can find refreshment, hospitality, a place to go to to share our sufferings, to confess our sins, to love one another. And so we'll keep going. I'll keep going in verse 4. It says, And putting to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea, across the coast of Sicilia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Canitis, as the wind did not allow us to go further. We sailed under the lee of Crete of Salmone. Coasting along with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, which was, which was near the city of Lacia. So they come to this place called Fair Havens. They, just, they had switched ships. Um, Now there were 276 people aboard this ship that Paul was on with the soldiers, the sailors, um, and the prisoners. And they they were going towards Rome. And it says, since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was over. This fast was the Day of Atonement. It was around this time of year in between September and November where their hurricane season was the worst. It was not a good time to sail around this time of year. And the fast, the Day of Atonement they were talking about was early October. So Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Paul had had 3,500 miles of sea travel under his belt. So he knew what he was talking about. He just stated in 2 Corinthians 11 that he'd already been shipwrecked three times. So he knows what's about to happen. So he tries to advise them, guys, I think you need to just stay at Fair Havens. Don't go to Crete and let's just park here because this is not going to turn out good. There's going to be much injury, much loss, not only of the cargo in the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix. So we're going from Fair Havens, whatever reason they didn't want to stay there, 
the harbor, probably couldn't accommodate them. They were going, trying to go to Phoenix. And from there, they'd spend the winter there and go to Rome. Now, what happens next is, you, is we see that the centurion and the captain and the owner of the ship decide to go the, with the majority. They reject Paul's advice, and they decide to, to take, take sail and go out, and they run into this hurricane-like storm. It says in verse 14 that, but this tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. So they lost control of the ship. They're being driven along the coast here. Um, they, they, they end up in verse 17, after hoisting this lifeboat up, they use supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis against the sand of the Sirtis, they lowered the gear and they were driven along. So now they've lost control of this ship. It's being driven along, and what we're going to see is that God is actually driving this ship along. It's God who is in charge of this storm. It's God who is, who is actually changing their travel plans right before they know it. He's driving the ship to where he wants it to go. And so they try to lighten the ship in order to gain control of it. They start jettisoning cargo and throwing stuff over this overboard. And it says in verse 20 that when neither sun nor stars appear for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. And we're going to see from verse 20 all the way through verse 38, Luke starts to use this kind of salvation language to, to go through this narrative and, and kind of explain what's going on. It's, it's kind of funny that he says, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. He's just leaving. We've lost hope. We've lost control of the ship. We're in the middle of nowhere. It's, it's a hurricane. They, they had no compasses back then. They were guided by the sun, the moon, and the stars. And those were covered by clouds and, and a hurricane. They were going through this, this storm, and they lost control, and all hope of their being saved was lost. So what can we see from this? Paul, Luke is going to start to use kind of this salvation language to show us how this physical salvation, how God is going to save them, is, is kind of like our, our spiritual salvation, how we are saved. And it begins with man's hopelessness. It begins with our utter hopelessness in that it actually starts way back over here where they reject the good advice. Romans 1 tells us that God has made himself known, that he's clearly displayed his invisible attributes and his power, and he's made himself known. But we as sinful human beings, we love unrighteousness. We suppress the truth. We reject this good advice that God has given us. We reject who he is and what he stands for, and we go our own way. We become the captains of our own ship, the masters of our own fate, and we sail off going to where we think we want to go. And as a result, we end up hopeless. We end up losing cargo. We end up losing lives. We end up jacking ourselves up on, on, this, on our own boats and end up hopeless, without hope. And this is where salvation begins, in the realization that we are utterly hopeless, that there is, all hope is lost if we don't have someone to come in and save us. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12 says, having no hope, that in, prior to Christ we were having no hope and without God in the world. But when we were far off, Christ brought us near. So this is where salvation begins, and this is where where they begin, and where God starts to step in, and it's in this utter hopelessness. Romans 5 tells us that we are ungodly, that we're we're sinners, that we're enemies of God because we rebel against him. We fall short. We mess our lives up. And this is where God intervenes. He intervenes when we've come to the end of ourselves. He intervenes at that moment, and he, he opens our eyes, and we realize how sinful we really are. How messed up we really are. God could have, they could have, you know, he ordained that he could, they could have listened to Paul and they could have gone another way or they could have parted. But no, God was trying to, to show them something in this. He's trying to show us something as well. He intervenes right here at verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not, 
You should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. So Paul's already warned them. He's already told them this was a bad idea from the beginning. And you can imagine that all the while through this hurricane, he's just shaking his head. And it would have been so easy for Paul, and it even sounds like this, for Paul to stand up on the middle of the boat right after they haven't had any food for a long time and go, guys, you hungry? You guys hungry? You should have listened to me. You should have listened to me. But he didn't do that. This statement of the kind of I told you so wasn't to rub salt in the wound, but rather it was to establish his credibility. You guys ready to listen to me now? You guys ready to, to check me out and hear what, I'm, hear what I'm saying? I knew this was a bad idea. And you can imagine all their attention in the midst of this hurricane being torn towards Paul going, you know what, he was right. Let's, let's hear what he's got to say. Well, what's going on, Paul? What, what's, tell us something. You were right. And this is what he says. He doesn't give this dramatic speech. He doesn't, I watched the perfect storm and those guys were standing there. They were just encouraging one another in the midst of trying to beat that hurricane-like storm. And they end up hopeless in the same predicament. And they just decide to keep going through it. And, and so many times uh, we, we see these accounts of sailors and, and, and these people who are in dire situations giving these speeches to, to move on and keep going. And it's not really based on anything but good hope. But Paul bases his speech on something else. He says, yet now I urge you. He said, you should have listened to me and have not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart. So Paul's message to them is cheer up. Take heart. Be encouraged. Be joyful in the middle of a hurricane, in the middle of a storm. Paul can, Paul can actually in this passage tell us how we can suffer well. Take joy, cheer up. Why? Why, Paul? For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Well, that's great. That's great, Paul. There will be no loss of life among us, but the ship is going to go. We're going to somehow, I guess we're going to all be saved. That's great. What, what's the basis of this? That's good news. I'd really like to believe that, Paul, but... but Where are you getting this from? For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Because for this very night, there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. One way in which we can suffer well is banking on and resting on the fact that God is in control of the situation. See, an angel came to Paul here and reaffirmed, just like Jesus did all the way back in uh, Acts chapter 23, and reaffirmed that you're going to get to Rome, Paul. God, who has created the universe and has all power in his hand, is behind you and is working in and through this storm and this suffering to bring you to Rome. So be confident, cheer up, relax, rest in that. And we can do the same thing in our sufferings. We can rest and relax in, even though an angel may not come to us. We have a, a far sure and greater word. These scriptures that, that, that we can rest and relax on the fact that God will bring us through our storms and through sufferings. He will bring us through this Christian life. He will bring us through this process where of sanctification. What he starts, he'll finish. So Paul rests in the sovereignty of God. The God who he belongs and who he worships. He said, don't be afraid. The angel said, don't be afraid. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted to you all those who sail with you. So take heart. Paul has faith in God in the midst of this. And we can have faith knowing that the God who created the universe, who sent his son to die, so that whoever believes on him can have everlasting life. 
If he had not, if he spared not his own son, will he not much more grant us all things? Will he not much more bring us through? Will he not much more keep us? And this is what Paul was resting in. This is why he was joyful in the midst of these sufferings. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. So now they're going to be saved. Paul has moved from from this circle of influence. He's moved from passenger, and now he's prophet. He's just declared this thing that God is going to do. He's declared it to them. He's encouraging them to take heart. And we're going to see how later he turns to preacher, and then how after that he turns to priest. So he's gone from passenger, advising them, guys, I don't think you should make make this trip. He's gone from prophet to tell them, you know what? We're not going to lose our lives. God said so. Verse 27, when the 14th night had come, we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea. About midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms, 120 feet. A little farther, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms, 90 feet. They they felt like they were coming close to this land and fearing that we might run on the rocks. They let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. Now watch this. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. There goes this salvation language again. This might have been what Paul said, and Luke jotted this down, but isn't that kind of ironic? Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. It's kind of those warnings that the, like those warnings that the scripture gives us. And so you can imagine these sailors with one foot in a lifeboat look at Paul and go, wait, wait, you just said we'd, you just said, you know, six verses ago, we'd all be saved. You just said God would preserve all of our lives in the end, and only the ship would be wrecked. So we're getting off the ship, Paul. How, aren't we going to be saved in, in the end anyway? And Paul issues this warning. Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. These two things, they may seem like they contradict one another, but they don't. We see these kind of things all throughout Scripture where this promise that God issues goes forth. And it's true because God said it is going to happen. These men are going to be saved. We can look ahead and we can see that in verse 44, and so it was that all were safely brought to land. What God says and what God decrees, it's going to happen because he's in control of all things. He's, he wasn't taken off guard by this storm and said, I've got to figure out something how to help Paul. But he was actually in control in the midst of this situation. And so this is what he does. He, he issues these things. There are these promises, these promises that you, can, you and I can hold to, to take comfort in, to take joy in. But there are also these warnings. And Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, said that they, these, these two things represent divine sovereignty and human responsibility. We see on one hand how God is completely in control of the situation. And that's encouraging to us. But on the, on the next hand, that now there are issues, warnings, and things that, that you and I, we, we, we've got to obey. There are these things we've got to pay attention to. We can't just sit back and, oh, now we'll be safe, so let's just, let's just do whatever we want to do. And this is what this represents. Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. These are just two lines that start, that go from all the way back in Scripture and will go all the way through Scripture and will go all throughout eternity. And we'll never see them connect. We will never understand how these two things just work together. They go all the way throughout eternity and they meet somewhere at the throne of God. And so what is this here? We see this warning here. And even if we jump down to verse 34, we see that, that 
they, as, as, excuse me, the verse 33 says, as, they were, as it was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food. Why? For it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of you. Once again, there's this promise. You're not going to perish. And therefore, because you're not going to perish, I urge you to do something. Take some food. Take some nourishment. And this is how, like, like we said, Luke is using this salvation language here. He communicate. I guess he wants to communicate the same thing to us. That there are these promises, but there are also these things where we've got to obey these things. Scripture gives us several warnings and several exhortations so that we, if we obey them, we will prove to show that we're connected to the vine. That we've truly been saved, that God has truly been gracious in saving us and bringing us from the beginning to the end. So where do we see this at? Where does this appear in Scripture? So we see, in, we see these things, how, how God establishes the end. He will save them, but he also establishes the means that the way that they will be saved is that everybody stays on the ship. The sailors can't leave the ship and then expect everyone else to stay alive because they've got to try to control the ship until it gets to land. God has established the end and the means, and he does so in the same way with our salvation. Philippians 1.6, Paul gives this, this, this promise, this encouragement to the Philippian church of this sovereign statement of how, how God is in control of our salvation. He says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it at the day of Christ Jesus. This is solid. I'm, I'm confident. I'm sure of this. God, who, who reconciled you to himself, who, who when you were blind, he caused you to see when you were dead in trespasses and sin, he made you alive. He started your salvation. He is the author and the finisher. He caused you to believe in him to trust in him. He who began a good work in you will complete it at the day of Christ Jesus. What God started, he will finish in you so you can rest in that. You can know that it's not up to you. God will save us. Those who he saves, he keeps. We can rest in that. We can trust in that. We can hold fast to him knowing that we are safe in his hands. But then we see this other thing of responsibility. Philippians 2, in the next chapter, Paul tells him, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, and so now only not, only not in my presence, but much more also in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation. Paul, wait, what, what, what? you just said he'd start it, he'd finish it. Work out your own salvation. These two things are very true. They're very true. The fact that he saves us and he keeps us is very true. And the fact that we must work out our own salvation with fear and trembling is very true. And when we do that, we come to realize, as the the verse continues to say, for it is God who works in you. It's God who's working in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So it's the same way as we see in Acts 27. And there's another scripture, and Jesus is is saying the same thing in John chapter 10, verse 27 through 29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. Strong statements about how Jesus, those he saves, he keeps because he and the Father are one. They shall never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Believe in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. He he will save and he will keep you. There's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. No other religion, no other other 
formula, no other way can promises this. The God who created the universe, who sends his son to die for us, promises this, that those he saves, he keeps. He keeps them by his power. But Jesus in John 8.31 goes on to establish and affirm this, this same thing of our responsibility. So Jesus told and said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. He issues this, this, this warning, you abide in my word. Keep enduring, keep persevering, keep holding fast, trust in my word. So back to Acts 27, we see these warnings and we see these exhortations, and Scripture gives us these things. Paul encourages us in the same way in 1 Corinthians. He says, hold fast to the gospel, hold fast to the word, unless you believed in vain. And he also does the same thing in Ephesians 4.1. He exhorts us, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the, worthy of the gospel of Christ, of the calling to which you have been called. I urge you. So we should pay attention to these these warnings and urgings of Scripture while at the same time realizing that the only way that we can work out our salvation, the only way that we can can actually go forth and walk in the calling that we're supposed to walk in is because God has been gracious in saving us. And this is is what's going on in Acts 27 on this ship is that these same two truths are, are working hand in hand. God establishes the end, and he also establishes the means. And it says, as as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of you. He urges them, once again, he urges them and he encourages them to take food, take nourishment. And we have those same urgings in, in our Christian lives and that God urges us to, to hold fast to his gospel, to continue to believe, to trust in him, to pursue holiness, for without it, no man shall see the Lord. And so, as it was about to dawn, Paul urged him to take some food. And he said, therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. When he said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. And they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. So these men have now gone from the middle of a hurricane to Paul is now breaking bread with them, distributing it to them. It wasn't the Lord's Supper, but they were thanking God, for God brought them through this storm, this suffering. And they were all encouraged. And when they had eaten enough, they had lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea. And at the same time, loosening the ropes, they had tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The boat struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken by the surf. And the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. So these, these soldiers, being on the ship, they were accountable for the lives of the prisoners who they were watching. And the centurion was watching Paul. So they were thinking, they obviously didn't have much faith in, in Paul's plan after a while because this ship was about to crash. They were worried about prisoners getting away. So they were going to kill the prisoners. Because in the end, if they didn't get to Rome with their prisoners, they lost their lives. So they formulated this plan to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, 
Julius, who had acted kindly to Paul before, now wishes to save him. And for Paul's sake, he cancels their plan to kill the prisoners. And he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard and first make for the land and on the rest of the planks or the pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. So he cancels their plan for the sake of Paul. And we see this. We see the gospel also in this narrative. We see Jesus in this narrative in the same way in that in suffering, Paul suffered well. We see this. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us how those who had faith went through many sufferings and often they rejoiced in their sufferings. And Christ calls us. God calls us to rejoice in our sufferings. In this suffering, Paul suffered well. See, there was, there was no way that Paul could have encouraged these men on this ship in the midst of this hurricane if he was not encouraged himself. When he told them to take heart and be joyful and be cheerful and rejoice in the midst of this hurricane, it was because he was already rejoicing. He realized that God was going to get him to Rome. He was going to bring him through this and that nothing was going to stop Paul from getting to Rome. Nothing, not even a snake bite as we see in Acts 28, which is next week. Nothing was going to stop him. So he took joy in that, knowing that God was going to get him and advance the mission to Rome to spread his gospel. Nothing was going to stop that. There may be hindrances to me and you. There may be hindrances to Paul and to everyone else who is in Scripture, but you cannot hinder the Word of God. You cannot hinder the gospel. You cannot hinder God's mission from being accomplished. So as a result of that, Paul took joy in the midst of suffering. God's mission will be accomplished because he is sovereign, because he is in control. This is his mission. We didn't come up with it. But it's a privilege that we get to engage in this mission and enjoy God and rest and realize that he will start this mission. He who started this mission, he'll complete it. And as we're on mission in our communities, in our homes, and as missionaries, in our jobs, it's the same way. We are safe. And so, how do we see this in, in Christ? Jesus suffered well. Hebrews 12, 2, it tells us that who Christ, Christ who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus suffered well. We see it in the Gospels how he was beaten, how he was flogged, how he was put before the Romans, how he was judged unjustly by Pilate, how he was crucified, died a horrible death. But in the midst of that, Hebrews is telling us that Christ was joyful in that, for the joy that was set before him. It says that Christ set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. There was joy, but he, he even saw through Jerusalem. He saw through the cross. He saw through the suffering, through the shame. And there was joy set before him. And as a result of that, Jesus suffered well. In the same way that Paul suffered well on this ship for the joy that was set before Paul in Rome and seeing the gospel advance throughout the known world, Paul suffered well. He endured. And in the same way, Christ suffered well. For our sake, he became sin who knew no sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God. There was joy in that. He suffered. He was a man of sorrows, but he suffered with joy. He endured the cross. He despised the shame. He looked past all of that, and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God, interceding for you and I, looking down on us with all of those other great cloud of witnesses, telling us to have joy in the midst of your sufferings. Don't try to push suffering away. 
Don't try to eliminate it. Don't try to deny it. But realize that God is purposefully working intentionally in the midst of sufferings to advance his mission. And what a privilege it is for you and I to take part in that. What a privilege that God will work in our sufferings that when we deserved a sword to destroy us in God's wrath, rather he gave us a fire to refine us so that the fiery trial will refine us and we will come out as pure gold. Be encouraged in your suffering. Know that Paul suffered well. Know that Jesus suffered well. Romans 5, 1 through 5, how can we suffer well? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Praise God, Paul. We've been justified. We have peace with God. We have obtained access through him into grace. We're no longer under condemnation. Your sins have been put away. They've been forgiven. Rest in that. Trust in that. Take joy in that. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Know that this grace in which you stand in, it's going to keep going. Those he he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he'll glorify. It's a chain that he's going to bring us. He saved us and he's going to keep us. He's he's going to, he foreknew us and he's going to justify us and glorify us in the end. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings. And here's a man who just did that in the midst of a hurricane, knowing we know something, that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character. We are to rejoice in our sufferings because God is working something within us. We're not getting what we deserve. Rather, God is working something positively in us. We rejoice in suffering because suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. It makes us more like Christ. Our sufferings, we're to rejoice in them because we're becoming more like Jesus. And it keeps going. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We rejoice in suffering because it makes us more like Jesus. And we rejoice in sufferings because it it helps us to hope to want to be with Jesus more. In our suffering, our eyes are taken off of all things that are earthly distractions, temptations, and we see Jesus. I want to be with him. I'm, I'm becoming like him in my sufferings, and then I want to be with him even more in my sufferings. To be with Christ, Paul said, is far better. I see Christ. I must know him. I've suffered the loss of all things that I might have the resurrection of the dead, that I might be with Christ. Lastly, where do we see Christ in this context? For the, for the sake of Paul, all were saved in the ship physically. For the sake of Paul, all were saved in the ship. We see this, that it says in verse 20 through 24, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. God has granted you that, Paul. God has given you the lives of all these sailors that they're going to be safe because, for your sake, Paul, and we're those sailors. We're in the same ship. We're hopeless. We're without hope. We're lost. We're in the midst of this this hurricane, this storm called life. We sin. We mess it up. We have no claim to redemption. There were hundreds of shipwrecks during this time. Why were all 276 of these guys saved? Cheer up, Paul. God has granted you, for your sake, Paul, 
the lives of all who sail with you. And it's for the sake of Jesus, only for the sake of Jesus, that you and I are saved. It's only for the sake of Jesus that you and I have any claim to redemption, only for the sake of Jesus. It didn't matter how good of sailors these were. It didn't matter how how good of life they lived. They had no claim to redemption. It was only for the sake of Paul, and it's for Christ's sake. God looking at his perfect life and his substitutionary death and seeing all the work that he did, he looks at Christ and says, those who believe on him will be saved. It's for Christ's sake that you and I are saved. So I encourage you, believe in him, trust in him. Without him, there is no hope. There's no hope. If you do not know him today, there's no hope. Know him. Believe in him. Realize that it, is only, it will only be for Christ's sake. When you stand before God on that great day in that great courtroom and the judge looks at you and asks you, why should you have eternal life? Don't pull out your resume. Don't pull out your long list of achievements. Don't pull out any and everything you can think of, your family, your friends. See Christ. He's the only reason that I will have any access to any grace, to any justification, to any life. That's why we need him, and that's why he is precious to us. That's the light of the gospel, and that Christ, God sees Christ. You must be justified by works. Yeah, whose works? Your works are like filthy rags. My works are are messed up. But Christ's works, obedient, suffered through death, lived a perfect life, died a perfect death in our place. Believe on him. He was resurrected from the grave, showing that God had forgiven and put away the sins of those who would believe in him, who would trust in him. So I'll end end here. We're saved for the sake of Christ. For our sakes, he became sin. For our sakes, he became sin, but because of him, we have become the righteousness of God. So now when God looks at us, he sees Christ. And God continues to work in and through our sufferings to advance his mission. So be encouraged today if you have suffered, if you are presently going through suffering. And be encouraged because you will go through suffering. Don't try to push it away. Like so many of the Americans in our church we do, we try to push that, we try to eliminate it. Be encouraged when it comes, embrace it. And realize God is working purposefully in and through our sufferings. I'll pray for us. Father, we thank you for this service. Oh, God, thank you for your words. Help us to, to, help for it to grip us, Lord God, that you're working in and through our sufferings, that the only reason we have any hope is through the shed blood of your Son. Oh, God, also help us to, to heed the, the warnings and, and the, the exhortations in Scripture that we see in Scripture. Help us not to get lax, but, Lord God, give us strength to obey you. Give us strength to pursue you, pursue the life that you, you, that you would have for us to live, Lord God, realizing that the only way that we will be saved, that we have been saved, is through Christ. That we earn no merit on our own, but it's only because of Christ. Help these things to grip us, Lord God. Help these things to change us. Help us to realize that to cling to your Son is the only hope that we have. In your name we pray. Amen.